welcome to Kissa, a story podcast. This is part two of the Night of Horror in Bhopal. So if you haven't listened to part one of this episode, do me a favor, click out of this one and go listen to part one and then come back to um, this part two of that same episode. Um, everything will make a lot more sense if you do that. And of course, part two will still be here. There are some images that get seared into our brains. These can range from the hauntingly stark landscapes of Ansel Adams to childhood photographs that remind you of another time. Here's another question while we're talking about photographs. What do you see in your mind's eye when I say Afghan girl? I instantly think of Steve McCurry's iconic photograph in which a young green-eyed girl stares into the camera her dirty red dupatta has holes in it. But you can't focus on anything but her gaze. Equal parts curious, yet shy. Fearless, yet diffident. Beautiful. Confident, yet dazed. She was the anonymous face of the Afghan war in 1984 and one of the most iconic cover images for National Geographic. However, there's another image from 1984 that truly haunts me. Unlike the Afghan girl photograph, there's nothing beautiful about this picture. But it is powerful and disturbing. This photograph is stark, black and white. It's a close-up of a toddler's face, his eyes swollen and frozen open, and milky. A hand is frozen in the action of brushing away dirt from the tiny forehead, which is a loving, though totally futile gesture, for the child's body is already buried, his face level with the grey, crumbly, rocky soil that will cover him forever. Interestingly, two different photographers captured this tragic moment at the same time, though from slightly different angles. One was Pablo Bartholomew, and the other was the famous photojournalist Raghu Rai. The face of this anonymous toddler was, and will forever remain, the face of the Bhopal disaster to me and to many others. I'll try and link um, a picture of this cover image, and um, or maybe I'll use it as the cover image for this episode. Let's do a quick recap recap from part one of this episode. On the night of December 2nd of that year, a deadly gas leak, 40 tons of methyl isocyanide, traveled on the air from the Union Carbide plant, spreading out into the environs around Popal. One of the biggest employers in town, Union Carbide, manufactured toxic pesticides. Specifically, the one that was uh, manufactured in Bhopal was called Sevin. Um, that's S-E-V-I-N. And the area around the factory was populated by workers and their families, um, as well as tens of thousands of others um, of Bhopal's poor people. These were the people in the path of this unleashed monster that made its way towards them on that night of December 2nd and the morning of December 3rd. Quick, everyone run! The Union Carbide factory has exploded. 
These were the words that Sunil Verma, our protagonist in part one, had heard as his world changed forever. I haven't been able to uncover how Warren Anderson found out about the disaster, but I'm sure it was couched in different, though maybe equally urgent tones. After all, this was bound to be, it was destined to be a PR disaster, and everything depended on how he and the other top brass responded to this crisis. So before we go into that, who was Warren Anderson? He was the son of a Brooklyn carpenter and an immensely successful um, person. His was a success story as he rose to become CEO of one of the largest multinational corporations in the world at that time, Union Carbide. Of course, like most CEOs, he wasn't aware of the day-to-day workings of a factory in a small North Indian town when he was in charge of a corporation that was across the world. But Mr. Anderson did know some things. So he was an impressive man who had excelled and become a leader despite his less than privileged background. In 1982, so two years before the disaster, Warren Anderson was personally made aware of a safety audit that identified 30 major hazards in the plant um, in Bhopal. And there were reports even before then that um, the toxic chemicals were leaching into the ground and the groundwater um, and had done so for years. So anyway, no surprise, none of these identified issues in Bhopal were fixed, but the results of the audit were used to fix identical issues that had arisen in an identical union carbide plant in terms of its setup. Um, the only difference, the, pl- the um, plant in which those issues were fixed was in the US. Because of course, rightly so, the company and its CEO knew they couldn't afford a major disaster on American soil. There might be repercussions. As you will come to see, they were absolutely correct in thinking so. And more importantly, knowing the opposite there would be barely any repercussions for killing tens of thousands of people halfway across the world. Now, no matter that the gas leak had happened in a developing nation, it was still big news. The worst industrial accident the world had ever seen had taken place in the world's largest democracy, India. The world's media was therefore focused on Bhopal, in part because of the powerful photographs of photojournalists like Raghurai and and Bartholomew. I wanted to see if there were any accounts of when Anderson was told about the disaster. I was really somehow very interested, um, but I couldn't find any um, record of that. However, five months after the tragedy, he did talk about Bhopal. In an interview with the New York Times, he spoke of his feelings of loss and helplessness. You wake up in the morning thinking, can it have occurred? And then you know it has, and you know it's something you're going to have to struggle with for a long time. What does that really mean? What what is his struggle? Um, I found that a very unsatisfactory statement anyhow. As CEO, um, the gas leak uh, was a PR nightmare. 
So Warren Anderson decided to go to India for some disaster management. And at the time, and even later, a lot of the newspapers reported this as um, an extreme act of bravery. Um, no comment. So Warren Anderson arrived in India four days after the disaster. So around the 7th of December. During those four days, India had issued a warrant for his arrest. He landed in India, like I said, on December 7th, and he went to Bhopal, where he was promptly arrested. <clears throat> Interestingly, he wasn't put into a jail lockup or a cell of any kind, but was detained in a comparatively luxurious company guest house that was owned by Union Carbide. But his real ticket out of there was a telephone. Warren Anderson would not have been able to do what he then managed to do without that humble landline telephone. So he walked into his room at the guest house and immediately started making phone calls, mystery phone calls. Without ever seeing the inside of an Indian police station or a lockup cell, he was granted bail the very next day, so December 8th. One of the terms of the bail was that while he was free to leave, he had to return to court whenever he was summoned, to the Indian courts, that is, and specifically the local courts in Bhopal. Just after bail was granted, he was escorted to the Bhopal airport, which was a small um, regional airport, um, except he went in an official car, official state business car, and was flanked by other law enforcement vehicles. He walked into a special plane that had been summoned for him, flew to Delhi, and then flew back to the United States. This was, of course, widely reported in all the major Indian newspapers at the time, which was full of nothing except Bhopal news. So the Times of India, the Hindustan Times, the Hindu, all reported um, about the mysterious circumstances in which Warren Anderson fled India. No one still knows who did what um, and spoke to whom to make this happen, whom did Warren Anderson call. There are rumors, of course, that the Prime Minister of India, the then Prime Minister of India, Rajiv Gandhi, and the Chief Minister of Madhya Pradesh, where Bhopal is located, faced a lot of pressure from the American government because Warren Anderson had actually called the American Embassy, which makes sense. I mean, if I was ever stuck, I would probably do the same. Other rumors circulated that Anderson was freed in exchange for an Indian prisoner in the American penal system. Like all good conspiracies, there are no clear answers and most of the main actors are dead. The truth is probably a combination of many of these theories, or maybe none of them at all. We do know that one of the officers who um, was posted in Popal at the time said that Warren Anderson would not have been able to leave if they had had the forethought to remove the telephone from the room in which he was detained. Anyhow, the immediate death toll in Bhopal continued to rise in the weeks after Anderson fled. Within two weeks, 8,000 people were dead. In another few weeks, this number would climb to 15,000. Ultimately, over half a million people were judged to be affected by the gas leak. This included deaths and um, all kinds of 
diseases and injury that resulted from um, the gas leak. So did anyone face repercussions from this horrific disaster? I mean, Warren Anderson fled and he never returned to India. Spoiler alert, sorry. Um, So, but some people did face some of the music. In 2010, now my math isn't great, but I believe that's 26 years from the disaster. 26 years during which birth defects soared in Popal and survivors developed frightening and painful conditions. And who was punished? Eight low-level union carbide executives, now in their 70s, were convicted of the charge of negligence for which they were sentenced to two years of prison time and about US dollars 24,000 each. But Union Carbide, Union Carbide Corporation, headquartered in Houston, Texas, declared that they bore no responsibility for the gas leak and that it was 100% the responsibility of Union Carbide India Limited, or what we will refer to as UCIL. At this time um, in the 80s, to do business in India, international corporations had to create an Indian subsidiary. Um, kind of similar to how businesses have to operate in China. So this was UCIL and Union Carbide um, Corporation that was headquartered in Texas owned 51% of the Indian entity. This um, lack of outright ownership gave the Union Carbide Corporation a loophole to absolve themselves of any culpability, but it was run by Union Carbide Corporation People were hired by them, the audits were run by them, the safety um, requirements were supposed to be done by them. So it was probably a foregone conclusion that fighting an American corporation and its powerful CEO in India was a pipe dream. So lawsuits were filed in the American court system. Federal Court Judge John F. Keenan suggested that fundamental human decency dictated that the Union Carbide Corporation should pay for the immediate medical care of the wounded. He suggested an amount of between five to $10 million to be disbursed through the International Red Cross. Even in 1984, five to $10 million for uh, remediating the condition of that many people was nothing for a corporation like Union Carbide. But This also meant that UCC, um, Union Carbide Corporation, could avoid liability. And this amount could be deducted from whatever the final compensation would be. Now, again, like I said, this might seem like a huge amount of money to, to us, but imagine compensating the orphans and the bereaved and the wounded, thousands and tens of thousands, and to pay for the medical care Um, of these 15 to 20,000 affected people, and that's a conservative estimate. Would that even fly in any other country, that offer? The Indian government rejected this offer. In March 1986, Union Carbide Corporation offered a settlement of 500 to 600 million dollars to create a fund for the victims of Popal, and this would be paid out over a period of 20 years. India rejected this offer too and countered with a demand for $3.3 billion. 
The Indian Supreme Court demanded that the Indian government and the Union Carbide Corporation work together in good faith and come to an agreement among themselves. Ultimately, UCC paid $470 million. Most of these were fines for negligence, um, even though some of these funds did go um, to the victims of Nepal, or they were at least allocated for the victims. The courts also ordered UCC to open a hospital for the afflicted in Popal, which cost about $17 million. Of course, all of this was woefully inadequate, and this was compounded by the sad fact that there is a lot of local and regional corruption in India, so the money didn't really reach those who needed it, to those who still need it. In 1991, the local Bhopal authorities, I think they were just frustrated at what they could do. They charged Warren Anderson with manslaughter, which carries a minimum sentence, or sorry, a maximum sentence of 10 years. Of course, the U.S. refused to extradite him, citing a lack of evidence. At the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear appeals of decisions made by lower courts in the U.S. against allowing victims of the Bhopal disaster to seek damages in the U.S. courts. Individual plaintiffs tried to sue for compensatory damages, but this didn't go anywhere. However, in 1999, a U.S. federal class action litigation, um, which was Sahu versus Union Carbide and Warren Anderson, was filed under the U.S. Alien Torts Claims Act, which provides remedies uh, for crimes against humanity. This suit sought damages for personal injury, medical monitoring, and injunctive relief, for the cleanup of drinking water supplies for residential areas near the Popal plant. 13 years later, in 2012, this was dismissed and all appeals were denied. So we're at a dead end. Despite being able to shake off responsibility for the disaster, Union Carbide wasn't able to avoid the stain on its name it had become synonymous with death and destruction in Bhopal. The images and the stories of Bhopal had made their way all around the world. Through the years, its various subsidiaries changed hands and names, trying to outrun its tarnished reputation. Eventually, in 1999, Union Carbide and the Dow Chemical Company announced that Union Carbide was to become a fully owned subsidiary of Dow. By 2001, Union Carbide ceased to exist. All done. In 2014, so 13 years after the demise of Union Carbide, Warren Anderson turned 92 years old. On September 29th, in a nursing home in Vero Beach, Florida, he died peacefully. In the years following his retirement in 1986, he spent his time fishing with his wife, gardening, and baking Swedish bread following an old family recipe. He lived a luxurious life on his sprawling Hamptons estate in New York. Eventually, as he grew older and his health failed, he moved into the nursing home in Florida. Warren Anderson had a favorite Chinese quote which sat on his desk. And this says, 
Leader is best when people barely know he exists. I'll let you decide how that falls on you. So this was the short, very short version of the Bhopal industrial disaster. But this story has not ended. It continues. The poison unleashed that night and through the preceding years had leached into the ground and groundwater. And by now, it has infected 42 areas in Bhopal. And it continues to spread. There is a pond into which the now closed down Union Carbide India Limited used to dump toxic waste. It sits untouched, festering, black, with wild pigs and children running around it unfettered. In some ways, it seems another fitting image for Bhopal, rotting, poisonous, and noxious, a killer monster. There's new data that shows that the mortality rate for victims exposed to the gas is about 28% higher than the national average. The rates of cancer, TB, underactive thyroid, which leads to um, uh, really devastating health conditions, various diseases of the lungs, kidney disease, etc., are also significantly higher than the national averages. Residents exposed to the gas are 63% more likely to have these illnesses. Women suffer a special hell. There are high rates of stillbirths, miscarriages, early menopause, and chaotic menstrual cycles. Researchers have found that second and third generation babies, babies that are being born today, are being born with severe disabilities. Um, The rate of disabilities is that 9% of babies born to gas-exposed mothers, even when those mothers were children, um, are born with disabilities as opposed to 1.3% of mothers who have had no exposure in India. The monster that devoured Popal's poorest residents continues to digest them, but there has been no recourse no restitution, no relief, no escaped, no escape except death, like Sunil Verma did. No one was held accountable. Few victims received any compensation. Omwati Yadav is a 67-year-old survivor who sobs as she sums up the emotions of those affected by the disaster. It would be better if there was another gas leak which would kill us all and put us out of this misery. This is not life. This is not death. We are in a terrible place in between. And there you have it. The tragic, maddening and depressing true horror story of Bhopal and its unending sequels that continue to this day. Tune in next time to Kissa, a story podcast, for something maybe a little bit lighter. Please rate, review, download, and subscribe. It really helps me. And oh yes, don't forget to tell your other story-loving friends about Kissa, a story podcast. Until next time, story lovers.